We're going to be back in Exodus 20 this morning. If you've been with us at all in the last four months, you're thinking, are we ever going to get out of Exodus uh, 20? Well, after this morning, we should, um, we should be for a while as we continue into chapter 21 and the rest of Exodus. And we work through a, a book of the Bible like this or a letter of Scripture. It really helps focus our time together. Um, how we receive and submit to the whole counsel of our God. We can follow the themes and the goals of the author as we work through a book together. So just a few reasons why we're going through Exodus from beginning to end. And in these concluding verses, Exodus 20, we're going to look at verses 22 through 26 this morning. The people of Israel are encamped around Mount Sinai. They've heard the audible voice of the Lord, and so they've, they've backed away a little bit. They're not as close as maybe they would have been. Um, this was an overwhelming and absolutely frightening experience uh, for the people of Israel. And so they don't exactly ask Moses. They more or less tell him, you speak to us. You speak what God speaks to you, uh, to us. And so Moses continues as their mediator. And that, that shouldn't surprise us that Moses is considered one of the, you know, the greatest figures of the Old Testament, one of the most revered by the Jewish people then and even uh, today as he fills that role of prophet, speaking the part of God to his people, priest, representing the people before God, and even king among the people at this time in redemptive history. Think of uh, early in the Sermon to the Hebrews in the New Testament. The author is, is compelled to, to share that, yes, this heir, this son of God, is even greater than Moses, if you can believe that. But now instead of an audible voice from the mountain, the Lord continues His instruction to Moses. He records it and then shares it with uh, the people. So the ten words, the ten commandments that we've, that we've been going through and have, have finished the last month or so, they're written in stone. They are the absolute universal uh, for God's people. Uh, it shows that the permanence that they are to hold in the life of the people. And so the instruction to come, which we're going to start today, are examples, application of those ten commands. Very specific contexts. God knows His people. He knows what it is His people need when they need it. And so He will apply this word uh, very specifically. If the people are going to make judgments in the wilderness when they get into the land of promise, they're going to go back. They're going to look at this book of the covenant uh, that we find here. That really starts in, in 20 verse 22 and goes through chapter 23. Consider the book of the covenant uh, language that we find in 24 verse 7. Uh, so we're going to read some examples, details on how the people are to show their love for God, uh, serve Him while loving each other in a way that is very different from the pagan nations around them. So I think we're going to read some things that many of us probably don't know are in the Bible in these next few weeks as we look at the book of the covenant or things we haven't read in a while, uh, perhaps. Uh, but this, this book of the covenant has its own little preface, beginning at verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. 
In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is God's enduring word to his people. Let's pray together. Lord God, we need your help in these moments to understand and apply this, your enduring and good word to us. It is what we need to hear. And so we pray that you would speak faithfully by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might be receptive, that you would help us in applying this word as your people in this place, in this context. Lord, guide our understanding. Be glorified in the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you and I receive important messages, um, whether it's through somebody just telling it, maybe you receive the message on your phone, maybe it's handed to you in written form, uh, it typically generates a response. Um, Actually, it's always going to generate a response. You can either ignore the instruction, ignore the importance of the message, or you can take an appropriate action depending on what you feel is appropriate at the time. You know, my phone went crazy this last week because it was a Monday or Tuesday we had all the rain, and so there's a flash flood warning. Um, my response was to take a different way home from church that afternoon because part of you know, Main Street would be flooded. So me- messages like this, these, these important messages, will move us to respond. Uh, in the days of the divided kingdom where there were kings in Israel and kings in Judah, there was a young man who assumes the throne in Judah by the name of Josiah. And Josiah is only eight years old when he begins to reign, and so he has plenty of growing and maturing to do as a a man and a king. But there's something wonderfully unique about King Josiah that we find in 2 Kings 22 and 23. The Bible tells us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't turn to the right or to the left as his father and so many other kings before him had done. His desire was to honor the Lord. And so he gives attention, gives instructions to to start cleaning up the temple. And some of his uh, trusted advisors, they come to him and they say, King Josiah, the, the high priest found this book. And because, you know, of the concern that you have shown for the the temple, the investments that you're making in it, we think you'd want to hear this. He actually found it gathering dust in the temple. And so they read this book to King Josiah, who's now in his mid-twenties. I want to read uh, to you what happens. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Asaiah the king's servant saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So this was an important word. A word that had been dropped 
or ignored for a long time in the land. But when Josiah hears this, he responds. He responds with repentance and sweeping reforms across the land. He responds in worship according to the word that has been read to him. Josiah would restore the Passover remembrance in the land. If, if you know that you have to restore the Passover, then you know things are in a bad way in Judah. But that Passover, the, the feast, culminates in the sacrifice of the lamb. We've looked at this in Exodus chapter 12. There the blood is shed for the protection, the, the propitiation, driving away of the sins of the people. And it's a bloody sacrifice by the clear instruction of God. So we see the need for sacrifice on an altar that's behind the instruction that God gives to His people in the wilderness. We're going to come back to the sacrifices in a minute. But when God speaks, when He gives this word of instruction, it's important. It demands a response. Our worship is a response to the voice of God. And not just any response, but worship according to His Word. And so what we find from the Lord's instruction here is that He alone is to be worshipped. There's a simplicity in worship and a sacrifice in worship. God alone is worshipped. Simplicity in worship and a sacrifice in worship. You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken with you from heaven. How could the people forget this? The voice of the Lord from the mountain. I mean, it's, it's fresh in their minds. It's in their memories. Okay, the word, this, this Ten Commandments and the instructions uh, that they are receiving come straight from Yahweh, the God who is. He's the creator, deliverer of His people. And this God cannot be contained to a certain space or place. You can't keep Him on the mountain. So He's not just the God of the mountain. He is the God of heaven who has chosen to speak to them. So the people really know the Lord by His speech, by His word, the power, the glory that accompanies that word. So the response of the people, their worship is according to the Lord's Word. It's a word-based worship. This is what shapes our worship. Whether it's privately, quiet place in your own home, or our corporate worship in these moments, the Lord speaks and we respond. We may respond in, in, in praise and adoration, thanksgiving. We may respond in confession. We don't have time right now, but we could walk through our order of service and highlight this back-and-forth conversation that we're having with the Lord God. God speaks to His people. And He continues to speak to us today. And it's at this point you might think, well, how does God speak to us? When does God speak? Um, I haven't heard the voice of the Lord recently. And that, that would make pretty good sense. Um, it be a terrifying thing. To hear the audible voice of the Lord, He could certainly speak to us in this way if, if He desired. Um, but it's not the norm in the church of this age because He has given us His Word. Um, this Bible that you hold in your hands, on your lap, um, this is God's speech to us. Um, it's His voice. He is the author 
And he's used unique uh, human instrument to record exactly what he wants us to know. He's given us by his word all that we need for a life of godliness and obedience to him. So if I hear someone say, well, I just heard the Lord tell me whatever, I'm going I'm to say, that's great. Show me where he told you that. Show me. We have the living and active Word of God. What makes it living and active? The very Spirit of God working in, working through the Word to teach us, warn us, train us. God's people in all righteousness. Um, and there have always been, always will be arguments against the reliability of this Word, the truthfulness of the Bible that you hold. Um, attempts to discredit either the content or the structure of the Word or the very canon we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And really the the point behind such argument is that if the Bible can be discredited, then it doesn't have to be or perhaps even shouldn't be believed. You don't have to take it that seriously. Again, we could spend the rest of the day talking about how the Scriptures have been preserved and and the, the proofs for what it tells us. But I'll simply say this, there is every rational reason to believe what the Bible says. We have very reliable manuscripts. We have historical record. We have confirmation through uh, archaeological discovery and all of that. But here's the point. It still requires faith to believe that the Bible you hold is in fact the Word of God. That's not irrational. Our faith is always seeking understanding, but the very faith to believe is not conjured up or reasoned together. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. The very same Spirit who has breathed out this Word. This is why we pray. We just prayed a few minutes ago for the illumination of God's Spirit. And we're reading and studying His Word. We pray that the Spirit would open the eyes of our heart. They would give us eyes of faith to hear and believe and apply God's Word. And this Word determines our response, central uh, to our worship. The Word fills our worship. The Reformers, they really tried to restore this understanding in the life of the church. The principle in shaping worship, it came to be known as the regulative principle. Which very simply means that our motivation for worship, the content of our worship, and our very goals in worship is determined by the Lord God and His Word to us. So that, that needs to transition us here into the, the next part of this first point. <laughs> our worship is to God alone. Verse 23. Uh, through Moses now, the Lord reiterates these first two commands. He alone is God. There is no other that can be worshipped alongside Him. Remember when we looked at the the last command and the call to um, not to covet, but to have a contentment, a desire after the Lord. To want more of Him because He is worthy. He alone is God. And so, no other gods really is a bookend to the Ten Commandments. It's a summary of the moral law that we're getting here in verse 23. Think of the nation surrounding Israel to include the one that they've just left. 
a few months before in Egypt. They made elaborate idols as part of their uh, worship practices. The idols were intended to stand out. They would use silver and gold to accentuate, add value to these idols. Let's be honest. The glamour, the glitz, that is attractive to people. Um, people like you, and like me. Okay, it gets attention. It pulls at our hearts. It always surprises us a little bit. Given how clear the Lord's instruction is here in the end of this chapter, what happens to the Israelites in Exodus 32? We'll get there someday. But do you remember what they do? Aaron makes a calf of gold. And the people begin to worship. A god of gold. I mean, hello? And we throw our hands in the air. How could they do this? This is unbelievable. But if we know our hearts a little bit, then maybe we shouldn't be quite so surprised. We love the bling. We love the glamour, the glitz. It's flashed before us everywhere. Um, But no idol, no matter how beautiful, no matter how elaborate, no matter how expensive, could ever compare to the Creator God. So we need to guard against this, uh, even this claim of the blessings of God over the stuff that He entrusts to us. This doesn't mean we can't enjoy nice things. But what is the attitude of our hearts? With the the beautiful, the elaborate, the expensive. And we say, well, this is just elevating my heart and my mind to the majesty of God. Okay? Let's guard our hearts. Sometimes that can be a mask for just a nice spiritually sounding way to bow before the idols of our time. But what can compete? What things on earth to compete with the glory of God, the majesty of the living God. God does not share His glory with another because there is no other. Um, no created thing deserves our praise and glory. Um, you can just hear the cry of our age to this. You know, that's pretty intolerant. Um, if God were more tolerant, then I could give Him my attention. Then I might even worship Him. And the answer is, my friend, you could not and you would not worship before Him. The one true God is holy, infinitely powerful, infinitely wise and good. There is a perfect intolerance at the worship of any other created things. So if to summarize this main point then, God alone is worshipped according to His Word. God alone is worshipped according to His Word. And then we find there's a simplicity, a purity in our worship. The Lord doesn't leave His people guessing on how to respond to His voice. He gives instructions on how to prepare and use this altar, which is the centerpiece for their worship. We're going to read later in Exodus about the construction of the altar for the tabernacle as a permanent piece of furniture that was moved with the people. But they could still offer sacrifices Their their response is to worship here, now. And this altar is to be very simple, to be very unadorned. Uh, And again, this isn't something new in response to God's Word. I think of Noah in Genesis chapter 8 as he builds an altar to the Lord. The patriarchs build altars to the Lord. Abraham, uh, Genesis 12, 22, Jacob 
In Genesis 35, there's just a few examples. These sort of quick builds, quick build altars, are to be made of earth or stone that hasn't been chiseled or fashioned in any way. Not because God is simple, or because He doesn't like nicely crafted things, but because He's holy. An altar to the Lord is holy. It's set apart unto Him. Belongs to Him. So if the people were to use their own tools, tools they might use for any other day-to-day projects or hunting or whatever, if they use those tools to, to shape the stone, then they can actually take some credit for it. Maybe some ownership of that altar. And the Lord says, no, this altar is mine. The altar was a tool for worship. It wasn't the point. God was the point. So there was to be nothing about this altar that should distract from the worship of God, the purpose for which that altar is used as a place of sacrifice. And then those constructing the altar had to be very aware of their own proximity, exposure to the altar. Why? Because God is holy. And then the mechanism used to worship, it's set apart. It's not, it was not uncommon at all for uh, the pagan nations around them to be very scantily clad in their worship. They even practice ritual prostitution and things of that nature. The Lord says, no, not among my people and those who worship me. He is holy. Those who come into his presence must be set apart, appropriately clothed. It's really uh, reinforcing here the role of the priests, the garments that they'll wear, which we're going to read about in a few chapters. The priests would have undergarments, but before that instruction, there's... There's a risk with those who are putting this altar together that they could expose themselves. Profane the altar, be insulting to the Holy One that they worship. So the people are beginning to learn. It's only going to be reinforced how important purity was in approaching the Lord. And when approached this way, and in reverence, simplicity, holiness, there is blessing. Now the Lord would make His power and His glory known to the people over and over again as they make this journey. They're not going to stay at Mount Sinai. He's going to move them from this place, lead them all the way to the promised land uh, and dwell among them in the tabernacle. So He's giving them every reason to worship, every reason to praise Him. And wherever that is done, wherever He's honored and worshipped according to His Word, there will be blessing. Lots of ways we could apply this to the Israel of God today and how we worship the Holy One. The worship of our God it should not be patterned after the rituals and the practices of the culture around us. It can be tempting. It is tempting. You know, to jump on board with the latest fad or tool or aid to our worship. But so quickly, those tools and the mechanisms and the resources, people included become the point of our worship and not the living God. So when we're gathered for, for worship, our worship should be simple and not showy. And we may have a beautiful facility to worship in, things to look at. Um, but it's important to consider what is, what is aesthetically appropriate and not distracting from the point of our worship. 
which is to meet with God in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the way that He prescribes. Jesus would say to the woman at the well in Samaria, the true worshipers of the Father worship Him in spirit and in truth. I remember spending a week in Ethiopia. A good reminder to me uh, that our worship setting and the tools that we use in worship do not have to be fancy. They don't have to be expensive. Uh, you know, sitting with beat-up plastic chairs on a dirt floor, brick building, unpainted, unadorned, a roof over most of the building, and a table with stacked books made for a great one of these. And the Word of God was preached. And the people were hungry for the Word. But it did not have to be elaborate. So I know we could say more on on our approach to simplicity to worship. Uh, We need to consider the sacrifice. Verse 24. We have recorded in Leviticus 1 that the burnt offering made for the atonement of the worshiper, for the one making the sacrifice, the entire animal was burnt up as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The message being, Lord, forgive all of my sins as you accept all of this animal bearing the consequence of my sin. So to meet with God requires a mediator. We stopped there last week. But to worship Him rightly also requires that something be done about our sin. To be exposed before the altar was insulting because our sin is an impurity. It's defiling to a holy God. It must be atoned for. Put away from the worshiper. So in the burnt offering, the Lord sees, smells the sacrifice that has been made for sin. And then once atonement is made, there is now a renewed relationship between God and the worshiper. And there's, there's a recognition, a celebration of this relationship, and that's the point of the peace offering or the fellowship offering. Leviticus 3 describes this in more detail. With this sacrifice, the worshiper could draw near and commune with the living God. Eat with God. So the best parts of the sacrifice, the fatty parts are, are burnt up, and the rest is shared, eaten by the people. They could enjoy a meal together. Peace. Um, even the name of this offering itself, you can hear this. The name of the offering is Shalamim. The Shalamim is now there because it's there between God and His people. Like how Tremper Longman, he commented, he said, sin corrupts shalom, and so shalomim describes the condition that results once that breach has been resolved. So through these, through these sacrifices on a simple altar, the people could worship God rightly according to His Word. For you and for me, the church all over the world, the days of bloody sacrifice are over. We haven't included that as part of our worship. Our offering has already been made. God Himself has provided the the sacrifice that atones for our sin. Think of Genesis chapter 3. God covers the shame of Adam and Eve through the sacrifice of an animal. Noah makes sacrifices for his family as they are spared. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, they all built altars to make atonement for sin. And with each sacrifice that the people make, just prepares the way for God's final sacrifice of atonement 
Romans chapter 3. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Jesus is the burnt offering that makes atonement for our sins. He is the fellowship offering that enables us to commune with the Father. Now that we've been fully reconciled to our God. Hebrews chapter 13, it even refers to Jesus as the altar before our Father in heaven. So we have these these temporary tools, pictures which enable the people to worship. But it shows us the depths of God's mercy and His grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sacrifice. So I think the, the word of the Lord, falling on hearts, enabled to receive it, it demands a response. Did for King Josiah, who searched out what God required of him and the people to worship rightly. Before our Creator and our Redeemer, we want to worship. We've been made to worship. We're going to worship. And so he tells us how to do this through his word. So there's a simplicity, a purity in our worship. And through the shed blood of Jesus, we are free. Friends, we are free to live and obey our Heavenly Father. Now our offering, I said earlier, we we haven't offered bloody sacrifices, but now now our offering is a sacrifice of praise. It's a a sacrifice of our, our whole lives before the Lord, not just on a Sunday morning in these few minutes, but every part of the day, every part of today and every part of tomorrow. Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for the one-time sacrifice that has been made for us. That altar, even the cross that we see before us, where You, Lord Jesus, took our sin away from us, that you bore the consequence of our sin, that we might be free, that we might enjoy peace with you. Lord, thank you for being our sacrifice, for being our altar. We're grateful for these pictures and these tools that you have enabled your people from of old to use in worship of you. Lord, may our worship be directed, guided, supported by your word and your word alone. We thank you for it in this time. In Christ's name, amen.